0: Well, hey everyone, my name's Sam. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a joy to be with you as we continue our series through the book of James. But before we do, I just have an announcement for you in case you didn't know, Christmas is coming. Hopefully you know this by now, but I can barely believe it's already that time of year. I've come to realize there's two main groups of people in the world. There's those who've been, you've been celebrating Christmas for a month already. You set up your Christmas tree, you've watched cheesy Hallmark films, you're listening to Christmas music, maybe some Michael Buble. And there's also a group of people that are even annoyed that I'm talking about Christmas right now because it's not December yet. If you're watching live with us in one of our interactive services, why don't you type in the chat right now an A or a B letting us know what kind of person you are. A, Christmas starts November 1st or whenever Starbucks brings out their red cups or B, don't even talk to me about Christmas until we reach December. But either way, no matter who you are, my question for you right now is is what do you think of when you think about Christmas time? Do you have fond memories when you think about Christmas's past, special time with family, meals where you're so stuffed? You you find yourself in almost a sort of food coma. Is it matching pajamas? I I have so many memories surrounding the holidays. And and one of my favorite memories, I I remember when I was young, growing up, my my dad had this little nutcracker that he would bring out on Christmas Eve every single year. And when you'd clap your hands, uh, the, the little nutcracker would raise its trumpet like this and it would play the melody of the little drummer boy. And we'd all stand around every Christmas Eve and watch it play and watch it play its little song and we'd act like it was the first time we'd ever seen it standing in awe of this little nutcracker. Lots of great memories but there's also memories I have of Christmas growing up where for whatever reason family holidays were this time where there would just be a lot of conflict in our family. We were your typical good Christian family from the outside but on the inside beneath the surface there was pain and anger and conflict and dysfunction and Things would usually be pretty good for the first few days of the holidays. Everyone would be on their best behavior, trying to share some yuletide cheer. Uh, But there would come a time on the holidays, and it was usually around Christmas Day or sometimes on Boxing Day, where, for lack of better words, all hell would break loose in our home. There'd be a big fight where, as a child, I honestly felt like my world was ending. I remember every Christmas, I would wonder, "Is, is this the year that my parents get divorced? conflict and fighting and and quarreling. Well, today we're gonna be looking at James chapter four. So if you have a Bible close, why don't you turn there, grab it, James chapter four. And in this passage, James talks us through fights and quarrels and division, and he gets at the very root of where it all comes from. So let's start in in verse verse one of chapter four. Here's what it says. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and can't obtain, and so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not ask, or you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it's for no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He goes on to say, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Let's pray together. Well, God of grace, we acknowledge our need today for you to speak to us through your word. And uh, and as we read through this letter from from James, as we seek to understand what it means, I pray that you would open our ears, our eyes, our hearts to hear what it is that you would want us to hear today. In your name we pray, amen. James starts the section of the letter with a question. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? What causes strife in relationships and in marriages and friendships and in sibling relationships? What causes divorce? Church splits. What causes you to say things you wish you never said? And, and he answers the question right off the top in verse one. He says, he says it like this. Is, is it not the passions that are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. The word here that's translated as passions and desires comes from the Greek word hedone, where we get the word hedonism. It's about the pursuit of pleasure, where feeling good is the ultimate goal of life. So so what causes fights and quarrels among you? What causes conflict and fractured relationships? Well, James says it it all stems from selfishness, self-fulfilling desires in our heart, a vision for what will will bring me pleasure, desires that are focused on self-preservation, on my personal ideal, what's good for me. Now, of course, not all conflict is bad. There are things in life that are important enough to stand up for and to engage in conflict for the oppressed, for the unborn, for the marginalized, to stand against evil. But but being willing to to lean into conflict in these ways can can actually bring about positive change. But this is not what James is talking about here. He's, He's talking about fights and quarrels, disunity, fractured relationships. And he says it doesn't come from anything out there. When we lash out, when we say something, oftentimes we're so quick to say, well, he made me say it or, or she just makes me so angry and that's why I respond like this. But James says your quarreling doesn't come from anything or anyone out there. It actually comes from in here, from a disorientation of our hearts. The source of our conflict is is the disorientation of our hearts, of our desires. I want to draw an important distinction here. James doesn't point to disoriented thoughts as being the reason for conflict in our lives. He doesn't say your thoughts are at war within you, causing you to fight and quarrel. He doesn't indicate that the problems with our minds, although there's a lot to be said about learning to think well, and, and maybe that's part of it, but he says it's your passions, it's your desires, the affections of your heart that are leading you into disarray. And and here's why this is important. In our cultural moment, it's widely accepted that that we can think our way to success, that we can think our way to a better life. And that's why millions and millions of self-help books are sold every year, teaching people to change their mindset and change their lives. And and there might be a place for that, but philosophers and sociologists, including James K. Smith, a professor at Calvin College, would argue that, that thinking right isn't actually enough. A person's core beliefs and behaviors aren't made up primarily in their minds. Instead, they're formed by their greatest desires, by what they love, by the affections of their hearts. I would define desire like this, our our deepest longing and ambition cultivated by our vision of human flourishing. Let me say that again. Desire is our deepest longings and ambition cultivated by our own vision of of what human flourishing looks like, or it's shaped by our vision of the good life. See, we're not motivated so much by our thoughts as we are motivated by our hearts and and our desires. And this is something that marketers understand well. Effective ads and and commercials aren't targeted at your intellect, helping you to, uh, they're not targeted at your mind to help you think about the practical, logical pros and cons of making a purchase. They're targeted at the deepest desires, the core of who you are. They're targeted at the affections of your heart. And how do they do it? With images of the good life, whatever that is, sex appeal, video clips of of beautiful men and women receiving the type of esteem that you dream of receiving. A a vision of what life will look like, what you'll feel like, a picture of success if you buy this product or attend this event or you get this new tech or you own the Audi or you go on vacation. and, And the thing is none of these things in themselves are bad. It's not bad to buy a new car. You know, we all need clothes. Vacations are good and an opportunity for families to bond. It's it's not evil to succeed at work. But when those things become the thing that we're chasing, when those things become the thing we're looking to fulfill our deepest desires, we're always left disappointed by the empty promises of joy that will come after you make that next purchase or after you finally become an executive at your company because those things are incapable of giving us the kind of pleasure we're looking to get from them. They present an illusion of happiness, but it's just that, it's an illusion. Have you ever been uh, uh, driving in your car on a beautiful sunny day? And as you look into the distance on the road, it it looks like there's a a big puddle of water up ahead. And as you drive closer to it, as you approach where the water's meant to be, you realize it's actually not there. It was an optical illusion. It's, It's called a mirage. You thought you were about to arrive at a puddle where you were gonna to get to this puddle and, where, and when you get to where it was supposed to be, there's no puddle, but you see another one in the distance. And so you keep driving and that puddle vanishes as well. And there's a scientific reason for this, but I think it's a good analogy of what happens when we chase an inadequate vision for human flourishing. We never actually arrive. The high is never as good as it was promised. And so we continue this game of continual cat and mouse and a never ending chase for pleasure. For fulfillment. Canadian actor and comedian Jim Carrey, he famously said this. He said, I wish everyone could be rich and famous and get everything they ever dreamed of so they could realize it's not the answer to anything. We want these things that we think are gonna fulfill us, and so we fight, we quarrel, we kill, maybe not literally, but we do whatever we can to get the object of our affection but it never satisfies us and it destroys our relationships with one another in the process. And James goes on to say that our disoriented desires are our misoriented affections. It doesn't only affect our relationship with one another, although it does, but maybe more importantly, it affects our, our relationship with God. See, if you remember in, in earlier sections of this letter from, from James, he refers to his hearers as beloved brothers and sisters. He, he leans into their identity as the chosen people of God, but how does he address them here? Do you notice, look at, look at verse four. He says, you adulterous people. <laughs> kind of harsh, an offensive address, adulterous. And with that very blunt address, he's conveying the seriousness of disoriented desires and, and what they do to our relationship with God. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I I just want to point out that when James talks about the world here, he's not talking about the people of the world. See, a verse like this can be kind of confusing because we know that God so loved the world, the cosmos, that he sent his son to die for the world, to save the world. And, And that's not what James is referring to here. He's not saying that friendship with unbelievers makes us an enemy of God. No, absolutely not. As as the church of Jesus Christ, we're to be good neighbors and friends to those who believe completely contrary things to what we believe is true. But what James is talking about here when he says that friendship with the world makes us an enemy with God, he's talking about the systems of the world the way of the world, the ideology of the age. It's it's finding fulfillment in what the world has to offer. When we're so enamored by popularity or wealth or, or stuff or followers, when we've bought into a vision of the good life that includes accumulating more and more and more stuff for our own pleasure, we intentionally or actually usually unintentionally begin to worship a different king. And, and that's why this is so dangerous because as we participate, as we, as we find our fulfillment in what the world has to offer, we actually begin to worship other gods. Now, when I say worship other gods, the danger for us as Christians isn't that we would be swayed to other religions or, or cults, that, that we'd become worshipers of Buddha or we'd become a Hindu or a Scientologist. No, the God of this age is way more sneaky than that. It's a, it's a soft, seductive voice luring us into the worship of self or success, or comfort, or power, or popularity. And these worship services aren't held in temples or cathedrals, they're held in malls through the practice of consumerism or in in high-rise office buildings in the pursuit of promotions and titles. Worship to to the God of self is held in lazy boy chairs or hours spent on Instagram and with every like, every hit of endorphins, our desires, our vision of the good life, our gaze is being set on a pursuit of happiness that ultimately leads us astray. In essence, the the God of this age is luring us to trade a relationship, a deep relationship with Christ, with the true king, a relationship that will bring life and freedom and liberation for a cheap knockoff at best, a mirage, a shadow of the real thing, and it never keeps its promises. It never brings fulfillment. And this is the reason that James uses such strong language. It's, It's because we actually become like the person or the thing that has our attention, that we love. N.T. Wright, a famous New Testament scholar, he said it like this. He sort of paraphrased Psalm 115, and he said, You become like what you worship. When you gaze in awe, admiration, and wonder on something or someone, you begin to take on something of the character of the object of your worship. Whatever's captured our imagination, the, the ideals that we've bought into, actually form the kind of people that we become. This means that when we practice the way of Jesus, taking our discipleship seriously and being formed by him and his word, we actually become more and more of our true selves. Imago Dei, the people we are created to be. We become a non-anxious presence, secure in our own skin. We become full of joy and love and, and peace. As our identity is realized in the finished work of Christ and in relationship with him, we, we begin to look more and more like Jesus. But when we embrace a vision for the good life that's wrapped up in momentary pleasure and in, in wants and desires for self-gratification and it, it, might, it might look good for a season. There might be thrill and excitement in the chase but like Jim Carrey said of his experience, you can have everything the world has to offer, the career, the house, the girl, the stuff and you find you're just as lonely and depressed as you ever were or maybe more because you find that the whole thing was built on an empty promise. Well, maybe right now you're saying, okay, Sam, we get it. Disoriented desires, worship aimed at the wrong things will pollute our heart and disrupt our relationship with God. But what do we do about it? How do we reorient our desires and find true happiness and fulfillment? Well, well, James gives us some keys. The first one is this. It's a posture of genuine humility. Verse six tells us that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble, over and over again, we see through scripture that this is not about having a flawless, sinless record. God doesn't look for perfection. It doesn't say that he gives grace to the sinless or to the perfect. It says he gives grace to the humble because the truth is no matter how close we are to God, no matter how much scripture we know or, or how hard we, we work to orient our desires towards him, we all wander We get caught up in the newest toys from Best Buy. We we care way too much about what people think of us. We waste our time and our money on things that have no eternal value. We argue, we quarrel, we talk rudely to one another, we sin. But James says that, that when this happens, when you get off course, come humbly before the Savior, admit your faults and fall into the grace of God. Pride looks within for the power to overcome these dark sides of our person, to become the people we are made to be. Pride says, I got this. I can do this. Where humility embraces an appropriate smallness, recognizing I'm not God, that I fall short, even my best attempts. I I, I can't be the person I need to be. I need a savior. And so humility realizes that because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, I have hope because of what Jesus has done, I'm made right with God and and I don't need to prove myself. Humility places our focus on God and not ourselves. And when we come to him in humbleness, he showers us with grace upon grace upon grace. And, And he gives us a seat at the table that we don't deserve. So we come with humility. The second key that James gives us is he says to draw near to God. There's this beautiful promise in verse eight that if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. I've heard a lot of people, a lot of Christians, especially through this pandemic, express that they're really struggling to feel close to God, that they they struggle to feel his presence. And that's hard, especially when you do long to be close to him. And there's times in the Christian life where where you experience what theologians call the dark night of the soul, where for a period of time, God feels distant, where you have to push through a feeling of almost being in in the the wilderness, spiritually speaking. And I don't wanna belittle that. That's very real. And in those times, I wanna urge you, stay close to Christian community, whatever that looks like in this time. Lean on your Christian brothers and sisters. But I also wanna ask you this, what, what are you doing to cultivate an intimacy with God? See, James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. There's an aspect of drawing near that we need to do as well. So how do we do this? Well, I think it's easier said than done, but there are some practices, some holy habits that Christians have been embracing for centuries to draw close to God, to orient their hearts towards him. These are desire shaping practices. And here's a few examples. Number one is, is daily rituals, there's so much research within the social sciences about the power of rituals and habits and how they shape our desires. And I don't have time to get into all of that right now, but, but if we regularly engage in rituals like scripture reading and prayer, personal worship times, walks outdoors, engaging with creation and, and the wonder of what God has made, these rituals build moments into our day where God can break in and speak. It's time set aside to intentionally shift our gaze back towards Him. Many of us wanna hear God speak, yet our days are so crowded out by work and Netflix and scrolling and noise that there's not even a gap of time where he, we could hear him in a still small voice over everything else that's going on. In the last few years especially, I found daily rituals to be immensely helpful in my relationship with God. And here's a few things that I do on a daily basis, just a glimpse into my super ordinary life. I'm a morning person. And so most mornings my alarm goes off bright and early at about 5.30 a.m. And usually the rest of my family is still asleep. And so I turn on the kettle, I grab the coffee beans that I had fresh ground the night before. And while I'm waiting for the water to heat up, very recently actually, I've, I've started to say this little prayer that, I, that I've, I've found in a prayer book. And it just helps me to focus my heart on the onset of the day on who I belong to. I wanna read it to you. It, it's just a simple little prayer. It, it goes like this. Meet me, O Christ, in the stillness of morning. Move me, O Spirit, to quiet my heart. Mend me, O Father, from yesterday's harms. From the discord of yesterday, resurrect my peace. From the discouragement of yesterday, resurrect my hope. From the weariness of yesterday, resurrect my strength. From the doubts of yesterday, resurrect my faith. From the wounds of yesterday, resurrect my love. Let me enter this new day aware of my need and awake to your grace, O Lord. And after making a coffee, I move to the living room and I light a candle, which helps me to remember that that God is present with me in this moment, that Jesus is with me by his spirit. I read a chapter or two of the Bible. Right now I'm reading through Romans. I try not to rush. Sometimes I only read a few verses. I spend some time in prayer. Sometimes that looks like bringing petitions before God, but other times it's just sitting in silence and meditating on what I've read or on what's to come. A lot of mornings then I'll read a chapter or two of a non-biblical book that helps me to grow my spiritual formation. Right now I'm reading a book on St. Augustine. And then usually midway through reading that book, my two-year-old daughter Kinsley wakes up and so I go and pick her up out of her crib. I snuggle her for a few moments and I start the day. And, and there's other little things I do throughout the day to kind of regularly shape my affections. But for lack of time, lack of time here, uh, I'll leave it at that. But, but the thing I want you to grasp is that it's simple. It's nothing overly fancy, but the key is consistency. Doing simple rituals like what I do in the mornings over time becomes a habit. And that habit creates regular space where God can speak to us and draw near to us as we draw near to him. Another desire-shaping habit is worship, corporate worship. There's, there's something absolutely profound that happens when, when, our, when we're with the body of Christ, gathering together to engage in musical worship, to, to hear the word preached, to engage in prayer, build community. We're being restoried, so to speak, as our hearts are being recalibrated by the gospel. As we engage in worship services, we're reminded of the grander narrative that we're part of, that there's other followers of Jesus who are experiencing the same thing that I am and we can encourage each other, spur each other on to finish the race well. Right now in isolation, church online is the best we have. And so I wanna encourage you, make it a priority. If you're not in a community group, get in a community group with one another, meet each other on Zoom. Whenever it's safe to do so, I wanna encourage you to get to church, get in a physical space with other Jesus followers because God uses those times together to shape us and mold us into the people we were made to be. And then lastly, I just wanna touch on confession. This is a really important one that's really been underemphasized in, in the evangelical Christian world for, for at least the last few decades. But the truth is, despite good intentions, our hearts continually wander. Like the old hymn says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. We get distracted by the world. We look to the created instead of the creator, and, and we need to continually make our way back to the foot of the cross. In Romans chapter seven, Paul says it like this, I do what I don't wanna do and I don't do what I wanna do. James even describes our desires at war within us. He tells us to resist the devil. In the original Greek, the language is actually combat terms that he uses in the war between the spirit and the flesh. One of the most powerful ways that we can resist the devil and cling to Christ is through the practice of confession, confessing our sins, yes to God privately, but there's also great power in confessing to other humans, to actually confessing your sin to trusted brothers and sisters in Christ. For me, that looks like Pastor Mark getting a report of my internet activity every single week, whether he wants it or not. (laughs) There's men in my life who know the sins that I struggle with, that that I can lean on, and, and who can lean in on me when I speak rudely to my wife or when I act out of pride or jealousy, who I can confess my sins to and they help me to return to my first love. This practice of confession, of accountability has brought so much freedom in my life. And, and I don't love it. <laughs> Quite frankly, a lot of times it's uncomfortable, but when what's in the dark comes into the light, there's tremendous freedom. Oftentimes it's shame that stops us from being honest and transparent about our struggles. But James reminds us today that God gives grace to the humble, that it's actually better to be broken and honest than proud and pretending that you have everything together. So in conclusion, as we, as we engage in this upcoming Christmas season, even as you live in this very strange time where we're more or less experiencing a kind of lockdown, for many of us in this time, we're experiencing conflict and quarrels and fights and our relationships are starting to break down with the tensions of either being together or not being together. But I wanna encourage you, ask the Holy Spirit to search your own heart. Where might your desires need to be recalibrated? Where have you looked for fulfillment and things that are just incapable of fulfilling you? And then humble yourself, draw near to God. And I believe that as James tells us in this text, that as we draw near to God, that he will draw near to us. Nothing and no one can fill you like Jesus can. Fix your gaze on him. It's in Jesus that we find our truest identity, that we find life and life to the fullest. Amen? Let's pray together. Oh, well, Lord Jesus, we're so thankful for your word and your servant, James, who's brought these convicting, compelling truths to us. And, and I just pray that, that anything that I've said that's from you, that's from your heart, I pray that it would sink deep into our hearts, that it would shape the kind of people that we're becoming. And, and things that maybe i said that are from my own heart or my own, um, my own thoughts, I just pray that those would be removed because we wanna hear from you, our God, our King. And so shape us, mold us into the people you've made us to be.